So this evening, uh, I would like to look at uh, one of the trainings that is recommended in uh, Korean Sun. So, when we uh, cultivate uh, meditation in the Korean Sun tradition, one thing that is generally emphasized is that we need to cultivate, we need to practice together ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And uh, our teacher, Master Kuzan, used to say it was like a tripod, like in the old days they used an iron tripod to make a little fire, and then they would put a cooking pot on top. And he used to say the three training are like the kind of the tripod, because you have the three legs, then you can put the pots, you can make fire, you can cook. But if you only have one leg, not much is going to happen. If you have two, not much either. So you really need the three so that the, it's stable and then it can have a very useful function. And he said in the same way, ethics, meditation and wisdom are the three training that we need to cultivate. Mm -hmm. So when we do this question, what is this? We have to see that is within this framework. So in a way, the questioning is not separate from the ethics or from developing the wisdom. And so the way they looked at is that each of these is a practice. <coughs> so ethics is a practice, meditation is a practice, Wisdom is a practice. And these three practices are actually going in a way to help each other so that we can cultivate in a beneficial way so the ethics will help the meditation, will help the wisdom, which in turn will help the ethics, and so on and so forth. So the three are seen as very complementary and very beneficial to each other. So this evening, that's what I like to look at, is the fact that uh, in Korea, the ethics is really seen as an essential part of the practice. In some Zen tradition, for example, like in uh, Japan, ethics is seen as coming from the practice of meditation and awakening. So they see that before you awaken, don't bother with ethics. And only if you awaken, then you really will have the perfect ethic, which can be a little problematic sometimes. <laughs> but like here in Korean song, they kept the same emphasis that you will also find in Chinese chant that you, re you don't wait till you are awakened to have the perfect compassion or the perfect ethics, but that actually cultivating ethics is really part, an essential part of the training. So first I like to look at two quotes from actually by two uh, great uh, Korean ancient teachers. One is Chinul, and Chinul was 
in the 12th century, uh, the monk who founded the temple where we train and the monk who advocate, advocated uh, this uh, sudden awakening followed by gradual practice. And this is what he says. To have no wrongdoings in the midst of the mind is a precept. To have no giddiness in the midst of the mind is concentration. To have no foolishness in the mind is wisdom. So he's saying that in a way we need to cultivate these three together. So the first one, to have no wrongdoing in the midst of the mind. And this is, would be very much seen, because it's very important to see that ethics uh, in Buddhism and also especially in the Korean song, is not seen as, in a way, just from the restraint point of view. Don't do this, don't do that, just for its own sake. So it's not seen as kind of like the precept as sacred, and the idea is just to keep to the precept no matter what happened, so that they would be seen as kind of like a sacred endeavor fixed for all times. But the way they see, because it's a training, they see it as something we cultivate. So in a way, it's something we aim for, we orient toward, we try again and again. So it's actually not about perfection, but it's actually about harmlessness. So it's really this basic idea of the Buddha when he said one of the right intention is actually thought which have no ill will, which have no aggressivity and where there can be some renunciation. So in a way, when you look at the precept, you're not looking at, you must, do, you must not do this because everybody say you must not do this. That's the way it works. But actually, you are encouraged not to do this because it's harmful. Harmful to yourself, but even more so, harmful to others. So then the, the precept then, the ethics, is very much connected to compassion. That it's, it's not actually a training of purity. Because often uh, ethics is seen as a training to become pure or to keep purity. Here, not at all. It's totally connected with compassion, with wisdom and compassion. This is actually the framework for the ethics. So in a way, when he says no wrongdoing, basically he's looking at the fact that the intention, that our intention, that our thought are not leaning, orienting, taking us toward harm to ourselves, to others, either through ill will, either through hatred, or through taking advantage, through greed, or whatever it might be. So it's kind of really looking at that. When he said no wrongdoing, he's really looking in terms of harmfulness. How are you harming yourself? Are you harming others? And then he says, because again you have the, the street training, he said, 
in the midst of the mind, to have no giddiness, so to have no agitation in the midst of the mind is concentration, which means meditation, which we have been practicing for some time. And then to have no foolishness in the midst of the mind is wisdom. So this is more about clarity. It's kind of, are we clear? And generally the idea, are we clear about impermanence? Are we clear about conditionality? So it's kind of looking at what is this experience? Are we clear about this experience or are we misperceiving this experience? Then there is another quote, and this is by Honjo. So Honjo was a little earlier than uh, Chinul. If I remember my day correctly, which I'm not sure about here, maybe 8th, 9th century, but I did not check. And Wonyu was really kind of a great, uh, in a way, systemizer. He really unified different uh, schools together. He's really known as kind of trying to, you know, different texts, different kind of school, and he's kind of tried to unite them. He's actually uh, famous for not going to China <coughs> on his way to China. <laughs> because he, he was on his way to China to go and get the great teaching. Because in those times, if I'm not mistaken, in the 8th century, there was great master and he was going to really go to China and practice really hard and awaken for the sake of all beings. But then on the way, so he kind of, you know, he walks through the south, he goes, walks to the north. And on the way he was very tired, and it was at night, and so he just rested by a little hut, and he was so thirsty. And he could not really see, because, you know, in those days they did not have, you know, iPhone with lights and <laughs> things of that nature. And I presume he didn't, his candle were not kind of... Uh, his matches, he did not have that either. So he's in, it's dark, it's in the night, he's really tired, so he kind of sit and rest, and he's kind of, you know, really thirsty, so he's looking around, and then finally he see, kind of, in the darkness, a bowl with some water. And he's so thirsty, great, bowl, water, and he drinks it. And it's really refreshing. And then he goes to sleep. And then the next morning he wakes up and he sees a bowl and he sees that actually it's kind of like a kind of sort of kind of like a dirty uh, bowl and in it the water is horrible. Mm -hmm. Like I mean the light of the day it's full of kind of stuff in it and it's kind of I mean last night he thought it was kind of pure nectar. And then in the morning, it is actually it's kind of fairly kind of you know, uh, muddy, unpleasant water. And just seeing that, seeing that you know he had two such different perceptions of the same thing, he had a breakthrough. He had, wow! And then he realized, I don't need to go to China. <laughs> this is you know wow. This is. The great truth, you know, let go of perception, etc., etc. So then he did not go to China, then he stayed in Korea and became one of the great teachers of his day. 
So that's one yom. And he says, however well you practice meditation without moral discipline, you will be like someone who is shown the way to a treasure house, but never goes there. However well you endure austerities, without wisdom, you will be like a person who intends to go east and head west. So again, what here is saying, you need to cultivate the three things together. Ethics, meditation, wisdom. Because it's true, in the Son tradition, I mean, really, I mean, Son means meditation. So in a way, when you say, you know, Son meditation, you basically say meditation, meditation. So they're really into meditation. There is no doubt about that. <laughs> but there is always this tempering of focusing too much on meditation and saying, however well you practice meditation, if you do it without moral discipline, it's like someone shows you a treasure house and you never go there. So you know, for your practice to really totally flourish, totally flower, totally exist in the world and not only on the cushion, then there need to be this practice, this cultivation of ethics. And then again, back to practice. When he says austerity, he means really like hard practice. Like when you really, really hard practice. A bit like what you did during the week. And then, however well you endure austerities, without wisdom, you will be like a person who intends to go east and end west. So that kind of, again, these two teachers were pointing out really need to cultivate these three together. And then, in Korean song, they have, so there is ethics, and then you have different framework for ethics. And what is interesting in uh, Korean song, like in uh, Chinese Chan, is that at some point in China, in the 4th century AD, 5th century AD, they felt, because you had all the texts what come from India, and, and then there kind of was this idea, we need to have an ethics which correspond to our, our, our aspiration. Because at the time you had the monks, Precept, you had the nuns' precept, you had the very short ten precepts for the lay people. And then they felt they needed to be something uh, which could be applied to everybody monks, nuns, lay people. And something which was a little more practical and a little more universal. And so they created the, a text which is called the Brahmajala Sutta, which has nothing to do, very little, just a little bit, with the Brahmajala Sutta in the Pali text. And they created, I mean, as I say, the text is from the Buddha, of course, but it's a little later. It's very <laughs> obvious that uh, you can, because uh, actually I translated the text. And the reason I translated the text, well, when I was in Korea, 
was because uh, this is very much part of the lay people's life, monk's life, nun's life. Like for the monks and the nun, at least once a month, they will be reciting the precept. For the lay people, every year they take the precept. So what is interesting with this precept, with this ethics, is not kind of you know you. It's not like a baptism. Baptism, you know, this is it. You get the precept. This is forever after. But it's really seen as a practice. It's actually seen as an orientation. It's seen as an aspiration. So it's not thinking, no matter what, I need to be like this all the time. They realize it's not possible. But it's an aspiration, it's a training, so you endeavor to cultivate those different precepts to whatever ability you have. And then very likely you will fall short. And then you take them again to remind yourself, what is my intention? What is my aspiration? And so in Korea, what happened over time is that I, like everybody else, once a month, uh, you had the precept master would read the precept in uh, Chinese Korean. And over time, I started to understand what he was reciting. Because at the time, you could not find really translation of the text in English. So over time, I understood what he was saying. And over time, I realized, hey, lots of the thing that we do in the temple is because we are cultivating this precept. Like sometimes I would see Master Cousin. Whenever he would meet a cow, because sometimes there was cow passing, he would meet the cow, and then we would go to the cow. To the cow, touch the cow. And I wonder, what is he doing this for? And then actually, he was wishing the cow that she had a good rebirth and become a Buddha next time. I thought that was sweet. So, and this actually comes from the precept. It's kind of one of the precepts. You know, whenever you meet an animal, you wish for them to awaken at some point. And, and so I realized, oh yeah, there is this ethical framework and it makes a difference to what they do. And so I became very interested in the text. I uh, translated it. I then also, when I finalized it after I stopped being a nun, I realized there was different translation and things of that nature. So I'll just kind of uh, present some of these things. The first thing I wanted to read and look at is actually the way, because I mean, generally you talk about precepts, and you think, oh, la, 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 la. you know, this is something which is going to be a restraint, it's going to stop me from doing something, it's not going to be fun, and uh, I'm going to be threatened with hell if I don't follow them or whatever. But here, this is what, the way it's presented. If you cultivate the precept, it will be like seeing the light of a fire in a dark place. It will be like a poor man finding a jewel. It will be like a sick person being restored to health. It will be like a prisoner being released. 
It will be like the return of someone who has wandered far away from home. So actually seeing the present as one of the door to liberation, one of the door to clarity, one of the door to freedom. So that kind of, in a way, we can start to see that it's really a practice. And it's really a practice connecting to the meditation practice. So I'll just read you, I mean, you have 10 major precepts, you have 48 secondary precepts, and I won't recite all of them, don't worry about that. And of course, some of them are just really cultural, so I won't go into them. Some of them are very nearly political, because of the political situation at the time. Again, I won't look at them. So you see that kind of, some of the precepts are universal and very adaptable to our time. And some of them are really, in a way, speaking to those times. But just to show you a little way, the way they look at it and how it can be a practice. So the first one, of course, is refrain from taking life. And then, and after that, most of them will be in that framework. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from taking life either by performing the act of killing himself or herself, by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, by praising death, by encouraging someone to take their own life, or by the use of spells and mantra. So, to me, what I found fascinating, because this is a practice, is that they, they don't just say, don't kill. They don't just say, don't harm. But they're kind of looking at the condition by which we could have somebody cause harm to somebody else. So they, in a way, it becomes practice because it's looking at conditions. Am I, I mean, me, I know that I've not done anything. But then, by whatever action you might have done or said, somebody could be harmed by someone else. You might have encouraged them, or you might have given permission. Or recently, with somebody could get uh, given some gun, and with the gun they could go and kill somebody else. So in a way, it's kind of looking not just as you're not doing something, but how do you influence others too? And then it says the the practice of a bodhisattva is to be compassionate toward others and lead them to liberation. So this is a practice, like if you do the Korean song meditation, the idea is to aspire to help others. And so within that, I mean, if you kill somebody, it's kind of really kind of totally the antithesis of that. Not only you're not compassionate, but you make them disappear and you can really not help them. So it's kind of like looking at kind of what is our practice, what is our intention, what is our orientation. 
And then I wanted to, another one I think is very interesting, is refrain from telling lies. And then we have the same thing. From telling lies, either by doing so oneself, by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, you must not create the causes and conditions for telling lies, devise a means for doing so, or actually saying them himself or herself. And here you get a little, very delicate thing. He must never convey the impression that he saw something that he did not see, or did not see something that he did see, either by physical gesture or by his mental intention. That's getting subtle, isn't it? <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, you look fine, but, I mean, right, kind of, you know, <laughs> indicate. I mean, it's kind of interesting, because he's not saying, oh yeah, I don't tell lies, but do you tell lies in another way? Or do you convey an impression of something which is not true? So in a way, what is, what the precept here in terms of the practice, it's kind of like, how do I, it's not just about not doing something. To me, the, all this precept is about exploring what are the conditions for doing something. And how am I do it or not? Or how am I, how am I do it in a certain way? And then you have uh, two interesting ones. Refrain from praising yourself and slandering others. So in a way, refrain from putting somebody down in order to put yourself up. So it's kind of like, I mean, we generally try not to do it, but sometimes we might say, oh, somebody asks you about somebody, oh, yeah, but you know, really, you know, and then... You kind of like, but me, you know. <laughs> and you know, so, so it's kind of like, what do we do to kind of, what do we do to others? What do we do to kind of improve our status or whatever of that nature? And then you have another one. Again, they kind of request quite subtle. Refrain from reviling others in order to spare yourself. So in a way, you put somebody down, or they're not worth it, or they're always like this, and by, in a way, uh, being very negative about them, then you don't have to put yourself out to do anything for them. I think we've seen a lot, a lot of this with the refugees at the moment in many different places. The, the refugees are ma making out to be this other, these terrible people, this, and in that way, then we feel less inclined to do something for them. Often we do this, we discriminate. It's an easy way to discriminate, is by putting somebody down. And then certain category of people are always like this, so it's not worth helping them or whatever it is. It's interesting how we can, as a society, 
we can do this as an individual person. We can also do this. And then this is a kind of a special one. Refrain from being angry. And when someone comes to ask forgiveness, treat that person well. So what this points out is that, I mean, they encourage you not to be angry and they do this in a different way. And what they say, uh, it's a duty of the Bodhisattva to be kind to others and not to quarrel and one try to be compassionate. If on the contrary, the Bodhisattva should abuse a living creature or vent his anger on an inanimate object. I like that one. <laughs> was not kicked his computer. Was not kind of, you know, something doesn't work, or the car doesn't work, you kind of hit it a little bit, kind of, maybe it works better. It's interesting. I mean, in those days, they might have, you know, kicked, kicked a cart. Now they would kick the car, or we kick the computer, or whatever it is. You know, this is human being, have not much change in uh, so many thousands of years. But then what he says, if the person politely begs for forgiveness, if your anger remains unappeased, this would be a very serious transgression. And this is interesting, forgiveness. Because we have uh, a difficult relationship with forgiveness. Because it seems to me that a lot of the time we forgive, but we don't forget. <laughs> and so we might say to the person, yeah, yeah, all right, all right, you know, I forgive you, da, da. But later on, we serve it again, but you did this. You know? I find that interesting. When here they really are saying, if somebody asks for forgiveness, can you really accept the forgiveness, forgive the person, and let it go? Because, I mean, here it's really a practice of de-grasping. This is really a practice. And what is interesting is that in the temple, out of that precept, they had a process that when you made a mistake, I mean a serious mistake, then the process was that you went to somebody a little higher up, you would bow three times, you would say, I made a mistake, the person would say, good, hopefully don't do it again, and that was that. And they would never speak about it again, it would never come again. And what was interesting is that um, the Westerner, uh, when we would make a mistake, and uh, then the master would say, hey, you did this, and we would kind of, I mean, we would generally say, but, you know, there was this, and there was that, and, you know, you know and that would make it very complicated, you know, finding reason. Uh, and I could see the master thinking, well, they just passed three times. I know they just make a mistake, it's finished, you know, we can move on. <laughs> so interesting <coughs> that kind of spirit of really letting go that if you kind of forgive somebody 
you really forgive somebody and you would not bring it again, again and again. That was it. And of course, the hope is that the person, by bowing, by acknowledging they made a mistake, really truthfully, then we try to understand the reason the mistake happened and we try not to do it again. Then there is another one which will uh, possibly sound familiar because I think this is something you find in many religions. Care well for those who are sick. Upon seeing someone who is afflicted with a disease, one must care and provide for that person as if that person was a Buddha himself. And then it says, if you fail to nurse and give assistance to someone who is sick through sort of dislike and resentment, then this is an offense. So it's interesting. So he says two things in that precept of cultivation. When we see someone who is ill, can we see that person like the Buddha being ill? So us, in a way, being available to the suffering and really being warm-hearted toward relieving that suffering. And then what he points out is that often what happens, the degree we will be available to the suffering of somebody often will be to the degree that we like them or that they have been kind to us, etc., etc. And so in a way, it's kind of like back to that quality. Can we be, in a way, warmly impartial? Not kind of uh, blindly impartial. Because if somebody is dangerous, then we would be careful. You know, we might help them if they're sick from afar, if they're really kind of uh, aggressive and dangerous. But if the person is not aggressive and dangerous, and they ill, can we look at how we are with them? Are we really genuinely friendly and helpful? Or if we don't like them very much, are we a little kind of different? Are we a little brusque? Are we a little kind of impatient? So how are we? So in a way, the precept is kind of is a practice because it's kind of looking how do I behave? Do I behave with compassion? Do I behave with wisdom? And then looking at what are the conditions that is going to stop me, to limit my compassion. And then you have a, a very good one. Do not keep and have ready for use any implements for killing. Uh, you know, because obviously if you keep things which can kill, then if they're ready to use, they could be employed to catch and kill animals or kill people or whatever of that nature. Then you have refrained from doing business with an evil intent. 
And then it becomes a little cultural. You must not buy or sell free citizen, slaves, or domestic animal. You must not sell coffee. That's interesting. Planks to make a coffin, etc., etc. Then you have another one like that too. Ah, this one. This is a very interesting one. Do not light destructive fires. Well, that's, that's easy. I presume most of you are not. <laughs> you know, lighting destructive fire. <coughs> but this is an agricultural society. And so this is a society, I mean, in Korea they still did it. And so what it says, with an evil intent. So again, here, it looks at intention. When you light a fire, are you lighting the fire with an evil intent? with a harmful intent? Or are you lighting a fire in a careful way? So you must not light a fire with a nasty intent in mountain, plains, meadow from the fourth to the nine months. And then people's house, city, etc., etc. So why the fourth to the nine months? And it's because this is a lunar calendar, so it's kind of shift a little. And it's so that because it's a growing season. That's why you have the insect. You have the plant growing. And so you must not like, because they light fire in the field to make them more productive. And they kind of, you know, uh, alternate. And so when I was in Korea, my friend, the farmer monk, you know, I would accompany him and he would put fire to the field. But never between the fourth and the ninth months. So always in the winter. In the depths of winter, just after the before the snow came or after the snow had finished, and before you had the plant growing up or the insect, then you would light fire so that it can uh, be, grow better. So you can also the the, the the precepts are kind of in a way for those time very practical. Nowadays, would in a way it's kind of to me when I look at this precept, I think what kind of precept would we create nowadays for our condition? We don't light fires anymore in the field. What else do we do? Then there is a one I like very much. Do not beg for and try to obtain things by relying upon the authorities. So basically, this is about influence. You must not extort money or goods or seek any kind of gain through relying upon the power of king, a prince, a minister of state, government official, with whom you are closely acquainted. And so in a way, using kind of like knowing powerful people to do nasty things to other people. So it's kind of, you know, very lucky. Lots of this happened in those days, and I must say they still happen nowadays too. So in kind of way, it's kind of looking at corruption. It's kind of looking at influence. How do I use my well-connected friend? Not only to benefit myself, this is one thing, but actually by using this connection to the detriment of other people. So what is, in a way, more important for the precept 
is that we cause harm to others. So it's kind of looking at whatever action do we engage in, which actually, even in a roundabout way, is going to cause harm to others. And the final one. Ah, that was the one. Do not hold an unwholesome occupation. So again, with an evil intention and for the sake of gain, so two things. Harmful intention and for the sake of gain. You must not sell physical charms of men and women. Prepare food with your own hands. Pound grain with a pestle, grind them in a meal, tell fortunes by looking at a person's face, interpret dreams, I don't know about Jungian therapists, but <laughs> predict, predicting the sex of a child, making use of spell and magic, performing tricks in order to deceive others, domesticating ox preparing any kind of dangerous drugs or concocting poison out of gold, silver or the venom of insects. So again, it's kind of rather cultural. Mm -hmm. Nowadays we might have different things that might be a good idea not to engage in. And then the last one, pay ransom and rescue people from their difficulties. Mm -hmm. So basically he's saying, you know, if somebody is kidnapped, again, this must have happened in those days, you know, that people were kidnapped or different things were kidnapped, and then he said, you know, try to rescue them, try to help them out. So, again, uh, I don't think, you know, uh, you kind of get the precept and then every day you kind of do all of that. But it's more looking. I think what ethics is about is really looking at relationship. Like the meditation is really about, in a way, uh, degrasping, building stability, <coughs> building creativity. But then with that, we can also orient more ethically. And then not to see as just, I don't do something. But I do something, and at the same time, I look at the condition which will help me to be more compassionate and wise, to be open to others, to be available to the suffering of others, to find creative response to the suffering of others, and also not cause suffering to others. So in a way it's kind of really, and it doesn't mean that we can never cause suffering to others, I mean, sometimes we have the best of intention, and you have a bad result. And then sometimes you have a bad intention and you have a good result. This is kind of a little bit of, some of the mystery of uh, things. But in a way it's kind of exploring this cultivating ethics, this training, is really exploring our relationship to ourselves, but very much to others. How do we view others? Do we view others for ourselves? Or do we view others for themselves? And in the relationship to others, 
can we find ways to cause not no harm whatsoever, but the least harm we can considering the condition. And then it's kind of interesting to look at. Generally, I am not an angry person. What is it that makes me angry? It can be so many different things. Frustration, stress, busyness. This is interesting. It's kind of, in a way, for me, the precept is exploring condition. Generosity. That's an ethical quality. But what stops me from being generous? What could stop me from being compassionate? What would make me aggressive? That's what is interesting, to kind of look. We have this intention, and then part of the training is looking at the condition. So in a way, building within ourselves the stability, the equilibrium, the wisdom, the clarity, so we're more likely to be ethical, but also look at the condition when we're not, and how can we work with that mm -hmm. also. And this is, in a way, the reason they take the precept every month as a reminder, this is our intention, this is what we want to train, this is what we want to cultivate. Mm -hmm. And why the lay people take it once a year, again, as a reminder, oh yeah, that's what we intend. That's what we want to work with. That's what we want to cultivate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.